Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Good works are not what make you a Christian. They are a natural result of Christ's work in us. Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series Salt and Light, God's Vision for the Church, with this sermon entitled The Devotion of the Church, which covers Titus chapter 3, verses 8 to 15. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. How ought the church respond to the cross of Jesus Christ? Do we remember when we were drowning in the sea of our sins? Do we recall the depth of darkness when our eyes were blind to glory? Do we remember when our heart was unfeeling and dead toward the things of God? But are we reminded that while we had forgotten our God, we were ever eternally in his mind? Do we remember that day, that glorious day when we were met with grace, not condemnation? Do we remember that though our sins were like scarlet, we were made white as snow? Oh, church, how ought we respond to the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Oh, church, we must. Indeed, we cannot help but to worship in wonder and awe. Love so amazing, so divine, demands our soul, our life, our all. But beloved, does not this divine love demand more? Does it not only demand that we love God with all our heart, but also to love neighbor as we have been loved? Does not the scripture say, how can the love of God be in us if we see our brother in need and yet have no compassion on him? Is it not true that yes, we are justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone? No, our faith is never to be alone, but always and forever be accompanied by good and beautiful works of grace for the good of this world. For we are his church, his workmanship, his masterpiece, his poem to a broken world. We are his hands that serve the afflicted and poor. We are his ears to hear the cries of the hurting. We are his feet to carry good news to the lost. We are his mouth and lips that drip with the sweetness of Jesus' name. Oh, church, how ought we respond to the cross of Christ? We are salt and light. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the very last part of Titus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great privilege to open your word. Lord, it is not lost on us that for many, many centuries, your people did not have access to your word, to the Bible. And so we're mindful even this morning of those that you raised up those many centuries ago. Uh, leading up to the Reformation to give us the word to the common man. And so thank you for that. Thank you that we can open uh, the scriptures that are living and active and we can ask you even now to, to press them deep into our hearts, to teach us, to shape us, to make us more like you. And so would you do that this morning? Would you teach us? Would you soften our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you work and would you do what only you can do to bring glory to yourself 
this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So everyone is devoted to something. And that word devoted is a word that we might uh, use often. You might use it often. And it carries with it a lot of weight. That we're devoted to something. Sometimes it's in the context of a relationship. You might hear someone say he is a devoted husband or she is a devoted wife or a devoted father, a devoted mother, whatever it may be. Other times it's in the context of a, of a job, of a hobby, something that you might enjoy doing, a game. I heard recently, I was watching Sports Center, and I heard one of the guys that they were interviewing say, I'm devoted to my craft. He was talking about basketball. He said, I'm devoted to get better. I have to be devoted to this. Um, you may hear someone say, she is a devoted artist. She has devoted herself to that for her life. Uh, You might hear someone say, I'm a devoted Falcons fan, and you immediately say, I'm very sorry. Um, Whatever it may be, we throw that word around, that we're devoted. Here's how, um, uh, was it dictionary? Where did I find? Vocabulary.com. This is how they define devoted. Being devoted to something means being focused on that particular thing almost exclusively. When you are devoted to a cause, you work to achieve its goals. When you are devoted to a person... You place their needs above your own. So I don't know that that needed the reading of a definition, but it just presses in for us. This is what this word means. And out of this word are other words that we use often, devotion, devout. You know, you, might, you may have grown up or have recently been in a uh, Christian uh, climate or, or context where devotion is used a lot. Have you had your Sunday morning or your Monday morning or your Tuesday morning devotion with the Lord? Some people call it quiet time. Some, time, some people call it personal worship with the Lord, whatever it may be. But that word is a word that's getting at, oh yeah, there's this time that I want to set aside to, um, to be devoted to the Lord and what he wants to do in my life. Or even more importantly, to remind myself in that quiet space of his devotion to me. Oftentimes you'll hear people saying, oh yeah. He or she is a devout Christian, right? Which is kind of funny because when you read the scriptures, there is no, uh, you know, hierarchy to Christianity. It's not like you've got a Christian and then you've got a devoted Christian or you have a, a Christian or a devout Christian. But I can remember that was what I was always called in college. Once I started walking with the Lord my sophomore year, I'm trying to do this Christian life thing in the context of a fraternity. Uh, and I was the only one trying to walk with Jesus out of 120 brothers. And oftentimes they're like, oh yeah, Jeff, yeah, he's like a devout Christian, right? That word comes from devoted. And somehow along the way, somewhere along the way, we've allowed there to be in the Christian cultural context there is this kind of level of Christianity where it's like, I'm a Christian, but I don't know that I'm, the, I'm not like devout or anything. But the scriptures don't leave room for that. People who are devoted to Christ are Christians. There is no alternative. Either we're devoted to him or not. But as you play that out, when you're talking about this language of devoted, devout, whatever, however we might want to word it, we're, we're beginning to get at 
what an unbelieving watching world has long held as an accusation against the church. That, you, that you're not devoted to what you say you are. You're not living out what I hear you saying. In fact, when I was in high school, the Christian album, if you were going to listen to a Christian album, there was this season for a couple years where the Christian album you're going to listen to was DC Talks Jesus Freak. And there was this little soundbite that they had on the album leading into the song, What If I Stumble? And it was this soundbite from one of the band members of DC Talk where they were quoting Brennan Manning. And this is, what they, this is what it said. It said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, is that a quantifiable statement? Is that something that, yeah, in my opinion, I read that and maybe it's my own self-defense mechanism, but I just go, okay, Brendan, I hear you, brother, but it feels a little overstated. Can we quantify that statement? Is that really the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today? I don't know. I don't think it's something that we can quantify. However, I think he's onto something. There's a lot of reasons as to why people don't believe in Jesus and reject the faith. But I do think a factor is hearing or perceiving what the church says that they're about and then witnessing something quite different in daily life. Whether that's individual Christian life or whether that's the corporate life of the church. Watching the church say, this is what it means to follow Jesus and then watching the life of the church and going, I'm not sure I want to follow Jesus, if that's what that means. Now listen, if there's any consolation in this, I'm not trying to bring condemnation or guilt, I'm just stating some truths, and if there's any consolation, it's that this has been a struggle for the church from the very beginning. This is not a 20th century thing. This is not a 21st century thing. This is a, uh, a church thing from the very beginning. And in fact, part of what Paul is addressing to these Cretan believers in this letter to Titus is be devoted, be devoted to what the church is to be devoted to. Be who we say we are. The truth of the matter is this. We struggle we struggle to be faithful in manifesting outwardly what we proclaim has been manifested inwardly. That's a struggle for all Christians. The watching, unbelieving world loves to call us hypocrites because of that. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And the reality is that we should be able to respond and say, you know what? You're not wrong. I am a hypocrite. I can't live out this thing perfectly. But can I talk to you about what it does mean to be a follower of Jesus? It's not that I would do this thing perfectly, but it would be that there's this, this person named Jesus who died for me, who rose for me and for you, who covered everything that would bring eternal damnation upon you and me. And he now lives in me. And what he's doing in me is slow and it's steady and it's certainly not overnight. And I am an imperfect mess in many ways, but I am bit by bit being transformed. And I long for that to be true for you as well. The big picture truth of Titus, if we were to just take each 
little segment of what we've taught through. If we take chapter one and we take chapter two and the first part of chapter three and then where we're headed today at the end of chapter three, these would be the four truths of what Titus is trying to get us to understand about the church and God's vision for the church. He says, in essence, he says, a church that is led by godly leaders or elders and teaches sound doctrine and is focused on the gospel will be a church devoted to good works. That's a summation sentence of the entire letter letter of Titus. A church that is led by godly leaders, that teaches sound doctrine, that is focused on the gospel, will be a church, imperfectly as it may be, but it will be a church of gathered people of God devoted to good works. Good works is by many scholars, they would say good works is the dominant theme of Titus. It's the thing that Paul just keeps bringing up over and over again. We'll just revisit the, way, the times that he specifically addresses it. In Titus 2.7, he starts with Titus. As the pastor, as the one who is establishing these churches and identifying godly leaders and in planting these churches, he says, Titus, you show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, model for the people, for the congregation, what it looks like to be a devoted follower of Christ who is therefore devoted to the good works of the kingdom of God. In Titus 2.14, just seven verses later, Paul says this, he says, he's talking about Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is a huge verse because he's tying all the things together. He's bringing the gospel into play. He's saying, look, this is why Jesus died. This is why the perfect son of God came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why he rose from the dead. This is why he ascended into heaven. And this is why he's going to return again. Here's the point. If you ever want a succinct sentence on why did Jesus come, here's one for you. It says he came to give himself first to redeem us, to redeem a people from lawlessness and to purify for himself for his glory, it's for him to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This is where he's, this is what, what undergirds that is, is the adoption that we have in Jesus, that we even prayed through earlier, that we are a people who aren't only forgiven, we are a people who aren't only declared righteous through the finished work of Jesus, we are a people who have been brought into not only a fold, if you will, of sheep, but we have been brought into the family of God, that he is our father, that Jesus is our older brother, that we are full inheritors of everything that is Jesus's so that when we stand before God one day, the way he looks at Jesus is now the way he looks at us. We are his possession. And in every other context of the world, you would hear that and go, ooh, I'm someone's possession. But in the context of the God of the universe, we say yes and amen. A little caveat here. What is Christian freedom? 
What is it that we long for? In the language of the scriptures, Christian freedom is actually to be enslaved. And some of you just went, er, what? The apostle Paul in Romans talks very, in another, a lot of his other letters, but in Romans he talks very specifically about if you want to be free, the freedom in Christ that we long for, Galatians 5 as well, then we must be enslaved to Christ. The world thinks freedom is complete freedom to do whatever you want, but that's actually enslavement to sin. True freedom, the freedom in which we were created for. We are created by Jesus, for Jesus, to be his possession. And in knowing that and experiencing that through faith in him, we actually experience the only freedom that truly frees that's been and is found in the person of Jesus Christ and us being united to him. We are his possession, but here's why. Ultimately, what is it that flows out of a people who have been redeemed, who have been brought into the family, who are adopted, who are now the possession of God Almighty? What are we to be about? We are zealous for the good works of that king. That's the church. You know, we often use the word possessed. And we only immediately think of demonic possession. Here's something we need to remember this morning. We better be possessed. People created by God for God need to be the very essence of being united to Christ is that we are now possessed by him, meaning he's living in us. And you go, this feels weird. Can you say that? Yes, we can say that, that Jesus possesses us now, which means that if we're possessed by him, what do they say of people who are possessed by demons? That everything coming out of them is freaky and weird and evil. Well, if you're possessed by Jesus, then everything coming out of you is beautiful and redeeming and awesome and glorious because it's Jesus coming out of you and he calls that good works. That the work of the kingdom is coming out of a people who are possessed by the king. And so now do you see why there can't be this entry level kind of like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not devout kind of language. It's if you know Jesus, then you're possessed by Jesus and Jesus comes out. It's not going to be perfect, but it will happen individually in our lives and corporately in the life of the church. People who truly know God are a people who are truly devoted to the things of God. This is what the scriptures teach us time and time again. And then in our text today, well, our text last week, Titus 3, 1, says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then the two that we'll see in our text today, Titus 3, 8 and 3, 14 say this, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works and let our people 
Learn, a key word, we'll talk about that in a moment. Learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Let me take you back real quickly. I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I just want to remind you what Paul is doing in the grand scheme of this letter to to Titus. If you go back to uh, Titus chapter one, verse 16, he closes chapter one by telling Titus, reminding Titus, remember, he says, listen, there's a group of people who have infiltrated the churches in Crete who say they're religious, they're Jewish by identification, but they are false teachers and they are ransacking and ruining and dividing the churches in Crete. And this is what he says about them. He says, they profess to know God, verse 16 of chapter one, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. I said last week, works never save. Good works do not save us, but good works flow out of people who are saved. And so one of the identifiers for Paul that he's telling Titus to say, hey, be on the lookout for this people. Here's how you'll know them. Here's how you'll know that no matter what they say about their religious activity, they don't know Jesus. Here's how you'll know. Because they deny him by their works. They deny him by their works. But let's go back even further to the very beginning of the letter. Paul's doing even something bigger than just calling these people out and saying, Titus, you got to be aware of these people. You have to rebuke them. You have to get them out of the church. He's also identifying this whole argument with the character of God. In Titus chapter one, verse two, after he said, I'm apostle of Christ Jesus, a servant of the Lord, he says this. He says in chapter two, he's talking about God and he just throws this little phrase in here that he doesn't throw in any of his other letters. He says, and God who never lies. Why would he say that? I mean, of course, it's important to say that, remind Titus that God never lies. But why would he make sure that he's saying that to Titus, who's going to be planting these churches in Crete? Remember, Crete was the mythical birthplace of Zeus, and they were really proud of that. The Cretans were. We've established in previous sermons how messed up the Cretans were. They were a wicked, wicked people. But even in the church, there were a people who were trying to come out of that lifestyle. But one of the problems, let me quote Tim Mackey here, who uh, founded the Bible Project. He says this. He says, one of the problems in the Cretan church is that they had assimilated their ideas about Jesus, the Christian God, to their ideas about the Greek gods, specifically Zeus, their chief god. Cretan people claim that Zeus was born on their island. They love to tell stories and mythologies about Zeus's underhanded character. This is what Zeus would do. He would, in their uh, mythology, he would seduce women and lie to get his way. So what do you do? They, you mimic your God. And so the Cretans, therefore, uh, would live that way because they would say, this is the way of Zeus. So Paul wants to be very clear, Mackie says, the God revealed through Jesus is totally different than Zeus. His basic character are faithfulness and truth, which means the Christian way of life will be about truth also. And if the Christian way of life is about truth, then it's truth lived in us through the power of Christ and truth lived out of us into the world around us that is uniquely and distinctly different. So let me remind you one last time. Each week I've given you one sentence that is the main idea of that week's teaching. Let me 
Let's revisit that, and then I'll give you one more for where we're headed today. So here's what we said in chapter one. Leadership in the kingdom of God is not a title to have or a position to hold, but a lifestyle to live flowing from a transformed heart. Uh, Chapter two, this is what we said, a summation sentence, thematic sentence, was sound doctrine fueled by the grace of God produces an increasingly godly life in a godless world. Last week, first part of chapter three, We said this, the gospel compels us to be a distinctly different people who are exploding with good works to the glory of God. And now this week, in the last part of the letter, these good works that God's people are devoted to are to serve as a blessing to all people, both those inside and outside of the church. Let's read the text. Listen to verse eight again and how it is a blessing The good works of God's church is a blessing to all people. Listen to verse eight. He's just given this beautiful presentation of the gospel of grace in in verses four through seven. And then he says, coming off of that verse eight, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Listen to what he says. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. That word people there is the generic anthropos in Greek. For all people, meaning that when the church is devoted to good works, everyone is blessed, believer and non-believer alike, in the church and outside the church. The church is the primary institution of God's mercy and grace and love to go forward to a lost and dying world. God's church is the primary institution where those who have been brought in are made more and more like Jesus through the good work of the church. Now, look what he immediately shifts to. Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. You see the dichotomy he's drawing? What's excellent and profitable? The good works of the church. What's not profitable, what's worthless, is getting caught up in all kinds of arguments that divide us. It's pointless, worthless, unprofitable. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, he's thinking about Matthew 16 here, where Jesus talks about go first and then go second and then go third. You can read that text. Don't have time to explain it now. But he says, go to him once and then twice and then having nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The good works of the church are first to be lived out inside the church. Maybe not first, but one of the first applications. There's a lot of ways that we could say that the church needs to be devoted to good works in the life of the church. But where Paul goes with this is alarming. It's not what you and I would initially probably go, yeah, uh, that's a good work of the church that I can't wait to sign up for. You know what it is? And Paul talks about this a lot in his letters in the New Testament. One of the good works of the church that blesses those in the church is church discipline. I didn't hear any amens. That's not something that we go, yes, church discipline, sign me up. But you know, if you go back to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, and you read the reformers, 
is they are reforming the church back to what God originally designed it to be. You know what they keep emphasizing? Three things. They keep talking about a healthy church is going to be faithful to teach and preach God's word. A healthy church is going to be faithful to administer the sacraments, which is baptism and, and communion. And you know what the third thing? So far we're going, yeah, we own it. Yep, with you. The third thing they kept emphasizing is good and proper execution of church discipline. And good and proper are important because the church had gotten so off track, the discipline that was being executed was evil. But good church discipline. It's a blessing from the Lord. And sadly, for most churches, and this is not at all to say, look at us, look how great we are, but for most churches in America today, church discipline has been totally forgotten. And it's been seen as a bad thing, for some reasons, in a good way, because it was abused. But when it's lived out appropriately, it is such a blessing to the gathered body of the church. I love this quote from Tony Evans where he says, a church that does not practice church discipline of its members is not functioning properly as a church, just as a family that does not discipline is not a fully functioning family. Listen to this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. He says, nothing can be more cruel than that leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Here's what church discipline is not. Church discipline is not a bunch of church leaders, elders who are on a power trip that just want to bring uh, discipline upon people. That is far from how we administer and go about church discipline here. But what we believe that the scriptures teach, even though it doesn't use this word, we're, we're readily uh, willing to admit, yeah, it doesn't talk about membership in the Bible, but what you see lived out both in the, in the letters of the New Testament and in the early church was that the church was devoted to people being brought into the life of the church and being held accountable that if their lives are not matching up with their proclamation of the gospel, if what's being manifested outwardly is in contradiction to what is being proclaimed has been manifested inwardly, that there would be people who love them so much that we would actually enter into their lives as the godly leaders who have been put over them and say, hey, we love you. We love you. And just like a mother or a father loves a child, my love actually leads me to enter in into a way that's not going to be comfortable or fun, but that ultimately is going to be what's best for you. Church discipline is motivated out of love and nothing else. That through the membership of the church, there would be a beautiful unity in the body of locking arms with one another and to say, how can we help one another fully experience the joy of knowing Jesus? And I need your help to get me there. Because left unto myself, if I just make this a Jesus and me thing, which is popular to say today, I don't do the corporate church thing, I don't do the, the visible church thing, it's just Jesus and me, you will see a person over time slowly fade out and burn out because God designed us to be in this corporate body where accountability is being shared and discipline out of love is being executed.
I wish I had time to tell you story after story after story of people who were approached in a very loving way by the leaders of this church who were way off in the good works that they were, uh, the, the life that they were living that was not indicative of the good works of someone who knows Jesus. And the church entered in and began to execute faithful church discipline. And this brother or sister was brought back into the life of the church and now they are thriving. And they would say time and time again, thank you. Now we don't do that perfectly. We don't do that at all perfectly, but we want to aim to do it in a way that glorifies the Lord. The second way that we want to be devoted to good works that we see in this text. Look at verse 14. It says this in in his closing comments, he says in verse 14 to Titus, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Let our people learn. So the second thing that I want you to see is be devoted to good works outside the church both inside and outside the church. This verse, verse 14, in the original language, it's getting at what we are to be and how we are learning to become more and more a dynamic entity in the community around us. A powerful expression of the good works of the kingdom of God, of the love of God, of the mercy of God, in the needs of those around us being met, first and foremost, by the church. That was God's vision for the church. Uh, This language here, to learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need, there's this natural posture and and positioning of the church to where we are in the muck and the mire with people. That's just a part of who we are. And we are meeting needs, whether that be financially, whether that be materially, certainly spiritually. We are moving in Uh, into the the muddy waters of people's lives and bringing the hope of Jesus. But this second phrase here, it says, and not be unfruitful, uh, is actually pointing us towards our work. How we work as Christians in the world around us. How are we producing in our livelihoods, in our occupations, in the things that God has called us to, even if we're stay-at-home moms or dads, whatever it is that God's called us to, how are we living out in fruitful ways the good works of the kingdom, not in unfruitful ways? That we are a people devoted to good works because of the good work of Jesus in us. What does this look like? Partly, that's why I want you to come back tonight, or at least tune in with us, because I'm going to talk about what is, what is the good work of Perimeter Church in 2021? What is it that we are going to be devoted to? So I'll leave you hanging on that one. But individually, individually, what is it? It's all kinds of things. There's too many to mention, but, but there's all kinds of ways that the good work of Jesus flows out of us. Maybe it's for you who are students. Maybe it's noticing the person in class who's always quiet, always shy, and no one ever talks to, move towards that person. Be the hands and the feet and the the voice of Jesus towards that person. Same thing at work. Maybe there's somebody at work who everyone else shuns. That's the one that Jesus is saying, you go to that one because that's, that's what I did with you. Through sin, you were shunned, but I pursued you with reckless abandon. Be Jesus. 
Maybe it's in the workplace, the person that you work alongside of who is not the quiet one or the shy one that everyone else shuns, but maybe it's the one who everybody loves and they're so prideful and they're so full of themselves and everything goes well for them all the time. How in the good work of Jesus in me can I move towards that person and serve that person when all I really want to do is knock them off their high horse? How do I move with humility towards someone that is full of pride? It means serving our neighbors. It means moving towards the people around us who are needy and helpless. This is why the Bible made such a huge deal time and time again about the widow and the orphan, because in that context, in that day, the people who struggled the most and were shunned the most in that society were the widows and the orphans. It's not all that different today. I hear from widows in our church that say, I often feel forgotten. It's about living out the gospel of Jesus Christ in tangible ways to those around us. And you may say, well, that's me. Nobody's coming towards me like that. Nobody's living that way towards me. And we say, okay, this is both, it's like this, this constant influx and outflux that we are loving one another in that way. And then we are loving those around us who aren't in the church in that way. And we will do it imperfectly. And it is hard, but it is the call of the Christian in a world that is in decay. It's what we've been called to. It's what we're to be devoted to. Let me speak to those who may be gathered with us either online or in person who don't know Jesus, who are really leery of this whole Jesus thing. There's a part of me that wants to say, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that if part of the reason why you haven't really wanted to enter into this church thing is because of what Brendan Manning said, it's because you're watching Christians proclaiming with their mouths, but then walk out the door and deny them with their lifestyles. And so there's a part of me that wants to apologize. And so receive that. But there's another part of me that says, look, we fully admit that we were not perfect. We've blown it. We've, we've not lived out what God has called us to, but please hear me. We desperately want to, and we desperately love you. And don't let the imperfect, listen to me, don't let the imperfect expression of his church dissuade you from experiencing the perfect nature of his character. He is so good. And he loves you more than you could ever imagine. So Christian, embrace the beautiful, wonderful, awesome experience of the both and life. Do we proclaim Jesus to people? Yes. So that's going to be my call. I'm an evangelist. Do we demonstrate his love to people? Yes. So that's going to be my call. I'm going to be a servant. The Bible doesn't leave room for either or. Together as a people, individually and corporately, we embrace the both, the both and life to where in every way we are constantly, by the power of Christ in us, demonstrating his love while proclaiming his gospel. Everywhere we go and everything that we do. It's, a good, it's the good works of the Lord that we are devoted to. There's only one who's ever done it perfectly. His name is Jesus. And one day he'll make us perfect when we stand in glory with him. But until then, we cling to the perfect one who through imperfect vessels does his good work.
Let me tell you something. 2021 is going to be awesome. And it has nothing to do with what's going on in our world. It has everything to do with what, with what God has planned for his church. And it's a good work. Father, we long for you to do your good work within us. We long for us to be a people who have been so transformed by you, Jesus, that our lives are devoted to the good work that you long to do, that you have created us for to walk in. We are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Jesus, when you said that we are the light of the world, you said, oh Jesus, you said, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So make us salt and light. Make us a people devoted to good works that you may receive great glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.